we have a preacher's worst nightmare. About halfway through that first song, the hiccups hit. So bear with me. <clears throat> Turn me to Revelation. You may want to leave a marker there. We'll be back to Revelation a lot this morning. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 is where we'll spend most of our time. Looking a lot at the seven churches there. When I first wrote this sermon, I titled it, What Can Kill a Church? And most of what we're going to talk about this morning, in fact all of it, falls into that category. It can be applied to what can kill a church. But as I preached it a few times, I realized that not only does it apply to what can kill a church, but it also applies to, to what can kill a Christian. There are a lot that are similar between the two. A lot of things that can kill a Christian can kill a church. And many times, the beginning of the death of the Christians is, is just the first step towards the death of the church. If the Christians begin to die, it won't be long before the church does. It relies on the health of the Christian. So this morning, as we go throughout this, I may emphasize one or the other a little more, but I think most everything we're going to talk about can be applicable to both. So try to apply it to both. Try to apply it to to how this affects you as an individual Christian and how it affects us as a church and how these things play out for us. Begin with me in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The church at Sardis was described as dead, completely dead. So churches can die. It's not something we want to think about. It's not something that, that's a happy thing. But churches can die, and oftentimes they do. And it can happen one of two ways. I'm sure we've seen it happen both ways. It can happen just as simply as the church ceases to exist. Their number dwindles. Eventually they, they close up the doors. Or it can happen in, in the way that Revelation is speaking of. That there is spiritual inward death, even though outwardly it still appears to be lively and vibrant. And that's the type of church death that is scary. That is something we need to be aware of. That's something that we need to be fighting against. So what can kill a church? Are we aware as Christians about how Satan attacks us, both as individuals and as a, a congregation, about what he's doing to try to drag us down, to beat us down, to kill us? Are there things as Christians, as a church, that are threatening our existence right now? And if so, what are they? What are the tools Satan has in his tool bag that he throws at us? That list is a long one go on and on and on about the tools and the methods that Satan uses, but there are a few, especially in the persecution of the church and the attempts he makes to try to kill the church that I think have withstood the test of time, that he has never gone away from them, that he reuses them over and over and over again. And I think they're ones that we need to be aware of. The first tool that I think Satan uses over and over again to try to kill us as Christians and as a church is persecution. Christians have faced that struggle for millennia, ever since the church began. Same in Revelation in chapter 2, 
chapter 2, look at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. They faced it, the, the, the churches in Revelation, there's multiple of them that are said to have been facing persecution, that they would be f- facing persecution in the near future. It's part of the struggle that's outlined that they would have to deal with, that they would have coming toward them. They were going to be persecuted for what they believed, for what they stood for. And they were called to withstand that. It's not just something that was Strictly for the churches here in Revelation, many churches, many other people throughout the first century face the same problem. Go to 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It it was not a specified one location problem that just happened one time. It was rampant. We know about the persecution of Christians by emperors like Nero and, and others that are accounted for us in history. The Christians were heavily persecuted in the first century. Peter makes that known that it's happening all over the place. Really, no one has it easy. We're all facing persecution. From the very beginning, it was a tool that Satan turned to. How could he stop the spread of this new religion? How could he stop Christianity from getting out there? How could he stop people from being zealous about it and letting it grow? He could beat them down and persecute them for its cause. And he did it time and time again. And time and time again, it was effective in many places. In 1 Peter chapter 4, In verse 12, Beloved, do not not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't even be shocked at it when it happens. It's going to happen. In some form or another, as a Christian, as a church, you're going to face persecution in some method. We, we're lucky here in America that we're able to meet and assemble on a morning like this morning and worship our Lord, and we have no fear of what will happen to us or what people will do to us. The rest of the world is not so fortunate. There's places all over this world where this tool is still being heavily used by Satan. There are those who fear for their lives and their freedom because of what they give to God. He still uses it. And even though we don't face it to the same extent, I'm sure in some form, all of us as Christians have faced some form of persecution. Whether it was reputation with our peers, or a stigma, or whatever it may have been. And the way the world's going, it appears that very well in this country, it could be a bigger problem in the near future. And we may be heading back toward a world where we are truly persecuted for our faith. We need to be ready to stand up against that like the first century church was. Satan uses it all the time. People respond to persecution differently. You see, when persecution arises, you really have two options. 
You can be silenced by it, or you can rejoice in it. And we have scriptural accounts of people doing both. Turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There was many Pharisees in the first century who believed what the Lord had to say. They knew it to be the truth, but they knew that the Pharisees as a whole and the Sanhedrin council as a whole, they were not going to get on board with what Jesus had to say. And if they went along with Christ, they were going to lose their status. They were going to lose their popularity. They were going to lose their position. And they were silenced by the possibility of persecution. They weren't willing to stand up for what they knew to be the truth. You know, if you look at Joseph of Arimathea, the man who took Christ's body off the cross, who buried it, eventually he worked up the courage. He did that. He made it known that he believed in Christ. And he did those things. But he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. It said that he had been a believer for a while. And he had been scared. He was not, says that he had, he had remained a, a believer in secret. He was scared of what would happen to him if he made it known. He was silenced at the beginning by persecution, even though he came and made it right at the end. It was a common thing with the Pharisees, that even when they knew the truth, they wouldn't admit it for fear of what would happen to them. Turn to Acts chapter 5. Set in opposite, opposition to this is what the apostles did on so many occasions when they faced persecution. They were not silenced by it, but rather they rejoiced in it. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They had just gotten done being beaten and imprisoned and threatened for what they were teaching, for what they were doing. And they could have been silenced by it, just as so many others had been, but they weren't. They went right back out as soon as they were released from prison and went about doing exactly what they had been doing, telling people about Christ. And not only not being silenced, but rejoicing in the fact that they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And now we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given unto us. We're supposed to rejoice in it, not be silenced by it, but face it head on and realize what it means for us as Christians, that we're faithful, 
Finally, go to James. James chapter 1, a passage we all know well. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Unless steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That attitude is a lot easier said than done. When we face persecution, that is not our instinct. That is not our first resort. A lot of times it is much more natural to be silenced. But whether persecution stays on a small scale like we face or whether it grows to be something much greater and much serious, much more serious, we need to remember what the true cause is, what the true point of what we're doing is, what our true goal is. And that persecution in this life will mount to nothing in comparison to our eternal home. And then we need to rejoice in the suffering and take it head on. Because how we react to persecution can ultimately and will ultimately determine our future. Silence churches, silence Christians will soon die. But God notices those who rejoice in it. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God notices. When we endure the persecution, when we take it, when we face it head on, and we endure through it, God notices. And he rewards those who do so. Go back to Revelation chapter 2. There were churches that faced this persecution and that endured through it. And God noticed them. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13. He's talking to the church at Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. I know you're facing persecution. I know you live in a wicked area with persecution all around you, but you've remained faithful. And I noticed that. He also noticed Philadelphia, who endured the same. Look over in chapter 3, in verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. In the face of persecution, when they remained faithful, God noticed. Silenced churches and silenced Christians will soon die, but those who rejoice in the suffering, God takes account of, and he rewards. We need to be ready when Satan throws those darts at us. And we need to make sure we're in the right camp. Another tool that Satan turns to over and over and over again and always has throughout the course of history is false teaching and false doctrine. And it is probably one of his strongest weapons. It has ravaged Christianity. It has changed 
the layout of the religious world. It has caused more people, more Christians to stumble and fall away than just about anything. There's a lot of doctrine out there. There's a lot of teaching that sounds good. It tickles your ears, as the scripture says, that people like. It's a lot easier to live by and abide by than what the scripture actually tells us. A lot of appealing doctrine out there. And it is easy to let it creep in slowly, but surely, and to help us fall away. In Revelation chapter 2, Satan was already using this. He did it at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, look at verse 2. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. Look at verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There was false teachers at Ephesus. They were in their ear. They were spreading a false doctrine. And Ephesus didn't put up with it. Ephesus weeded them out. Ephesus didn't listen to what they had to say. And they were commended for that. Pergamum that we already looked at, he commends them for dealing with persecution. But if you look in chapter 2 and verse 13, he then tells them, but you're struggling with holding to the truth. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Tells them they're faithful in the persecution, but then look at the next verses. But I have a few things against you. You have, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So exactly what Ephesus had said no to, had pushed out, had avoided, Pergamon had let in and were suffering from. They had let the false teaching creep in among them. And they were warned about it. Both Paul and Peter warned us of these challenges. Go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Beginning in verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Wolves are going to come. False teachers are going to come. You're going to hear things that don't align with what you've been taught, that don't align with the truth. And they're going to be tempting. And they're going to sound good. But you've got to stand up against them. They're not the truth, no matter how good they sound. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed. I'm sure you've seen this before, that a healthy, thriving church, one person, one man, 
can come in and fly under the radar and teach something contrary to the truth and slowly but surely it creeps its way in and everyone is bought in and it destroys the church. I've seen it happen. It's a strong tool and it happens more often than we would like to admit. And maybe it's just a little thing. A little thing here and a little thing there that don't seem like a big deal in the grand scheme of things. But it leads us down roads we don't want to go down. And even little things are a big deal to God. If we're going to avoid false teaching, if we're going to stand firm in the truth, two things are necessary. And they may seem a little self-explanatory, a little straightforward, but it's just how it works. Two things are necessary. We cannot turn away from sound doctrine. It is the popular thing in the world around us that this is no longer the rule. This is no longer what we abide by. Emotions and preferences and what we want rule the roost. Most of the religious world around us lives by that. That what they want matters more than what this says. That's most of religion in today's world. We can't let that become us. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Looking at verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into mist. Doesn't that sound like the world around us? People don't want to hear this anymore. They won't stand for sound doctrine. There are Christians who don't really want to hear what this has to say anymore. They want the fun parts. They want the Jesus' love and everything's good. They want to hear that part. But anything that requires change, that requires effort, that can be condemning in the slightest, they don't want to hear that. They're not about that anymore. That's old school. We can't let that become us. Looking at the two verses before those there in, in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4, we've got we've to stand for the, the word. We've got to stand for good preaching. And that involves both the negative and rebuking and the positive, exhorting. And there are many people out there who just want to hear the exhorting. And there's a place for that. But it's not all there's a place for. There needs to be some rebuke sometimes. I know Christians who say, we don't want to preach that stuff. That's doomy and gloomy. We don't, we don't want any of that. That's not going to come from the pulpit. They won't stand for preaching that steps on some toes every now and then. Look at verse 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Timothy was told to do both. You rebuke them and you exhort them. When they're doing things wrong, you let them know. And when they're doing things right, build them up. Timothy wasn't told to shy away from the hard parts, from the pieces that may, people may not want to hear. No, you do all of it. And that is not popular in today's world. We need to be aware of Christians of pop preaching. Preaching which is merely for entertainment. 
for making you feel good, for making you okay with where you're at in the world, even if you're in sin, rather than actually being used for teaching. And that is more prevalent within the church than we want to admit. You all know places that are like that. We cannot support those who teach things contrary to what the book says, and we also cannot support those who are not willing to say what the book does say, even when it's hard. Because that is every bit as much a problem as preaching things that aren't in there. We've got to be willing to preach it and it only and everything that's in it. And that's not just from the pulpit. But that's in your own evangelism when you're out in the world with your peers and those you talk to and those you come in contact with. We've got to be willing to tell them everything. The third tool that Satan turns to over and over and over again that destroys Christians, that destroys churches, is letting worldliness creep in. And again, it's something that happens slowly and subtly, and may not even be noticed most of the time, but in the end, ruins a church, ruins a Christian from the inside out. Includes immorality, not immortality. Immorality and materialism. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, love of the world. That's easy to fall into. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Satan tempts us and lures us with the attractive things of the world, with one goal in mind. To destroy us. To ravage the Christians, to ravage the churches, to destroy it. Go back to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. This is exactly what was taking place in Thyatira. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Thyatira had tolerated worldliness. There was wicked among them, and they did nothing about it. They tolerated it. They turned a blind eye. They allowed it to creep in, and it put them in major danger. And it wreaks havoc in many churches and on many Christians today. It draws Christians away from true, faithful, fervent service to the Lord to where the Lord is not priority number one and His will is not priority number one. 
but seeking the things we want out in the world and getting what is appealing to us and seeking our own desires, that's priority number one. Churches suffer when the members are fruitless. When members are sick, when members are weak, the church is weak. The church relies on the health of its members. Go to Luke chapter 8 and verse 14. Luke 8 and verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Christians who let worldliness creep in, who let the things of the world become priority number one, they're fruitless. They don't produce anything. And when we're not producing, we're not of benefit to the church. We're not of benefit to, the, to God. We're not okay. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. All of the members, every single one, matters to the health of the church. The health of the church is dependent upon its members and their health. We all have a role to play, we all have an obligation to our fellow Christians and to our Lord to keep worldliness out, to stand firm in what we know to be the truth. Look at verse 15 there. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. The ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. We've all got different roles. We're not all the same. We've all got different jobs. But we all matter. We've got to have all of us. We've got to have all of us doing what our job is. We all need to be healthy. We all need to be looking out for our own spiritual health and for each other's spiritual health. That's the reason God, in His ultimate genius, gave us a church. He knew we needed that. We need brethren to look out for us, to keep us healthy. We need to lean on one another. Continuing there in verse 21, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow even greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, 
that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Often we take from that how we, we need to be a unit. We need to suffer together and rejoice together and work together, and that is true. But I think there's something else to be gathered from those verses. I think often as Christians, we make the mistake if we're the one who stumbles, if we're the one who is weak, if we're the one who is struggling at the time, maybe our spiritual health isn't where it needs to be. That we feel unimportant, that we feel like we're not needed, that we're, we feel like we're not as much a part of the body. And on the flip side of things, when we see someone who falls into that category, sometimes we're quick to write them off and to go, well, they've fallen away and they're weak and they're not doing what's expected of them anymore. And we write them off as dead and gone and no longer needed. And it's not how the body should function. We lean on one another. And we go out and get, we get the weaker member and we strengthen them and we rally around them and we bring them back and we get them healthy again so they can do their job because we need them to do their job to stay healthy. The health of the church revolves around the health of the Christians. We need to make sure not only that we're staying healthy ourselves and we're keeping worldliness out of our own lives, but we're picking up and supporting our brethren and helping them do the same. To ward it off, to ward off worldliness, to keep it out, we need three things. Go to 1 John chapter 2, a passage we already read, but we're going to re read it again. 1 John chapter 2, we need to have a true love of the Father. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we don't need to love the world, and what is set in opposition to that? A love of the world, the opposite is the love of the Father, and a dedication to His will. And that's what we need to have. Go to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 and verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Again, they're in opposition to each other. A love of the world is the opposite of a love of God. How are we going to combat the love of the world? We've got to have a love of God. We've got to truly love the Father. Second thing we've got to have is we must not conform but rather transform. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present, yourself, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That mindset is not creeping up and getting as close to the edge as we can and just stopping just short before we're out in the world and being like them. That's not the mindset. The mindset is to stay as far away from it as possible. Do not conform to it, not even in the slightest. 
but be transformed, be different. Keep worldliness out. And lastly, we have to be diligent in watching and praying. Turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21 and verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day will come upon you suddenly like a, like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape and all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. We need to be diligent in the spiritual things. Diligent in prayer. Diligent in effort and time to God. Because whenever we get lackadaisical and lazy in those things, whenever we're not actively climbing toward God, we start drifting away to the world, whether we know it or not. When we're not faithful in those things, that's when the world creeps in without us knowing. We've got to stay faithful and diligent in those things. We can be sound on many issues as a church, but if our members, if we as the Christians are infected by worldliness, the church can be dead. Worldliness will kill a church. The final tool that I think Satan turns to over and over and over again to kill Christians and to kill churches is indifference. It's a subtle yet incredibly effective tool. It jeopardized the standing of Ephesus. Go back to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They were zealous at the beginning. They were all in. But they had become indifferent. They had abandoned that first love, that zeal that they had, and they were in a dangerous place. It made Laodicea, as we all know, because they were lukewarm, because they were indifferent, it made them repulsive to the Lord. But he said, I will spew you out of my mouth in chapter 3. God does not tolerate indifference. We don't have to oppose the church we don't have to oppose the doctrine of God to kill it. You don't have to be fighting against it. As Christians, we just have to be slothful, to be lukewarm, to be not fully on board. And we can do just as much damage that way. Look at Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 9. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. When we're not diligent, we're destroying. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. We do not have to actively be the persecutors and the fighters of the church. 
when we're not diligent, when we're not all the way in, when we're not on board, when we're not working, we're killing the church. Slowly, but surely. Indifference is a dangerous thing. Indifference has many symptoms that show up in our lives. It will make itself known. This is just a a list of common ones, but fill in the blank with anything. Indifference can cause a list of, of a ton of symptoms, but irregular church attendance. If we love it, if we're all about it, if we are bought in, we'll be here because we understand the importance of it and how much we need it. We'll be here if we're bought in. A lack of participation in church works and in spiritual things, a waning effort in your personal life of evangelism or helping the needy or any work that you could be doing for the Lord. No personal time or private devotion to God, whether it be in, in study of the word or prayer or etc. Those things will disappear from your life whenever indifference creeps in. You'll see a difference. Does your to-do list have anything on it for God? Or is it all worldly stuff? That one hits close, home, close to home for me. I got school, I got work, I got a lot of things to juggle. And Christ gets put to the back burner sometimes. And the to-do list does not focus on him. He's priority number one. Does your to-do list have anything for God on it? Or is he an afterthought? Are we indifferent? And with indifference, the only anecdote is the opposite. Fervent service, making it a priority, making it a goal to be diligent in whatever we do. We must not grow weary in doing good. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. It's easy to do. Life is short, but sometimes it seems long and sometimes it seems to drag on and things are difficult. It's easy to grow weary. But we've got to remember the purpose and what the reward is. We've got to be diligent and we cannot become sluggish. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And lastly, we must hold fast to the hope that we confess by encouraging one another. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. We apply that to attendance so often, and that is a a good application of it, but it's talking about diligence, keeping each other accountable and being serious about what we're doing, that it does not get pushed off. God doesn't tolerate indifference. There are undoubtedly other methods, plenty of other methods, that Satan uses to attack us as Christians and to attack us as congregations and as a universal church. 
He has an entire toolbox full of tricks. But I think these are definitely some that he has turned to time and time again. Why? Because they work. Satan's pretty good at what he does. He's got it figured out. He uses these tricks on repeat because they have results for him. They work. The only way to defeat Satan is to find what's working for him and how can we combat that? How can we take away his tools? We've got to ask ourselves, is Satan making any progress in killing us? You've got to ask that on an individual level. And sometimes we have to ask that as congregations. Is Satan making any progress in killing us? Others may know us as a sound Christian, a healthy Christian, a sound church. But only we truly know what struggles are hitting us and which ones are winning and what battles we're losing. And sometimes Christianity calls for a little self-assessment. We've got to look inwardly. See, where are we losing? And how can we start winning those battles? We need to pay attention to how Satan's hitting us and how we can win. We need to be honest with ourselves, not just denying our faults, but we need to truly look at the issues that we have and admit them and strive to fix them so that the great deceiver is not successful in deceiving us into believing that we're just okay and we're better than the world around us and it's all fine. That's what he wants us to believe. And sometimes we need to take a closer look inside to make sure that we're not falling prey to that lie. If you're here this morning and there are things between you and your God that you need to make right, that you've been losing some battles, and you need to make that publicly known and you need the prayers of the church, make that known this morning. We would love nothing more than your brethren and to help you in that, to pray for you in that. We've all been there. We've all lost battles. We all continue to lose battles. We'd love to stand by your side and help you in that. Or if you've never put on Christ and you've never dedicated your life to Him and you've not started that walk, He expects the same from you. Why not make that decision this morning? If you need the prayers of the church in any way, make them known as we stand and sing.